All right. Uh, so I am going to be talking today about this article that I just wrote for Jackman Magazine. Uh, it went live on Jackman, I think, late this morning. Uh, it's called I'm a Socialist, Joe Biden is Not, uh, which just for the title is kind of an odd article to write, like, yeah, no shit. Uh, but the uh, the deck, the little description under that at the top of the article gives you a little better idea of why I'm writing it. So it says, during a speech on Saturday, Joe Biden referred to right-wing protesters calling him a socialist as idiots. He's right. Socialists are committed to ending inequality, and the president has always been on the other side of the barricades. And, um, you know, I was planning to do a call-in about this even before I kind of saw some of the reaction on Twitter, but I have to say I did find some of that reaction pretty funny in various directions because... You know, part of it is because obviously it came out on election day. Uh, that's just kind of how the schedule worked out. Uh, but also part of it is that a lot of people have election brain and they can only interpret everything that everybody says as some kind of commentary one way or the other about what people should do in the election, which it's really not about. And I want to um, actually maybe kind of start off with that before I even really talk about the article itself. Uh, and also I, I am going to keep periodically checking the queue. So if anybody wants to call in uh, at any point, really go nuts. But on the one hand, um, I'm not going to claim that I don't care about the voted issue. I do. Uh, I obviously have views about that. It'd be weird if I didn't as a person who comments on politics for a living. Um, and, you know, I, I yesterday's room, on Colin with uh, Bronco Marchantich was about an article that he'd written about the uh, GOP's announced plans that Kevin McCarthy document a commitment to America where they say they're going to raise the minimum wage for Social Security and Medicare and try to rate it the NLRB so it doesn't do so much pro-union stuff. Obviously, I think all that stuff is abhorrent and as bad as the Democrats are, I mean, I said this morning on Twitter um, that, you know, and, and I would stand by this, uh, that, um, you know, if, you, if you're a leftist and you're not sure whether or not to vote and also you're curious about what my take is and that probably when you put all three of those conditions together, we're talking about like five people. <laughs> but look, I mean, if, if anybody wants my tactical, you know, I don't, I don't believe in sort of shaming or denouncing people to make a different tactical calculation than I do. I think that's pointless at best, worse than pointless at worst. Uh, but, um, you know, but if somebody asks for my tactical advice, I will tell them what I think, which is this. This is this is what I said on, uh, on Twitter this morning, that, uh, you know, my take is that even if the Dems are 10,000 miles from your and my political preferences, you will unfortunately notice the difference between 10,000 and 15,000. So, you know, I voted today. You can, <laughs> you know, you can see if you're looking at the video uh, feed for this. You can you can see my uh, little I voted sticker. I'm in Atlanta, so it's got the Georgia peach on it. Um, because yeah, it takes about five minutes. Uh, in fact, it probably took me about five minutes, including parking and walking back to my car. Uh, and um, and I think as a as a matter of harm reduction and as a sort of tactical decision about you know given that the uh, Republicans and the mainstream corporate Democrats are both enemies of the working class. 
uh, you can still decide which enemy you'd rather spend your time fighting. And so, sure, right? I did that. I voted for a bunch of thoroughly mediocre Georgia Democrats. And if anybody wanted my tactical advice, I would advise them to do the same thing. But I also think it's an extremely small part of politics as a whole. Uh, if your political activity is mostly voting, then you know, you're know you not very politically active. Uh, that's just you know pretty clear, right? So, and certainly I think that sort of tactical and harm reduction issue about voting is a very different question from like this much larger and ultimately much more important project of building support for a larger socialist ideological agenda and helping to educate people about how that's different from a centrist liberal view of the world, which is the kind of thing that I'm trying to do in this article. So uh, I, you know, I also posted just a few minutes ago on Twitter, I found this really funny. Uh, there was, I saw two diametrically opposed uh, reactions to it. Uh, so there's, there's one person, uh, uh, Alexander McKay, I feel like might be involved in some small left-wing magazine. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, uh, McKay uh, quote tweeted Jacobin's uh, tweet where they tweeted out my article and said that Jacobin will tell you to vote for Biden, Joe Biden, all day, every day. Not at all true. Uh, and then uh, Yeldahl uh, responded to the article, the Jacobin's tweet of the article says, I'm always impressed that Jacobin comes out with its best, quote, reasons not to vote Democrat, unquote, collections right before each major election. So Yeldahl thinks that um, whoever that is, and I'm, you know, please don't go yell at this person. I'm just, they're just somebody I'm using their tweet as an example. But uh, this person thinks that the point of the article is to discourage people from voting for Democrats, even though that's exactly what I did today. And then uh, Alexander McKay thinks that Jacobin tells people to vote for Joe Biden all day, every day, which I would just say, yeah, please point me to these articles that were published all day, every day, encouraging people to vote for Democrats. Um, you know, you can see maybe a few articles like Broncos that sort of implicitly suggest that maybe, but even those don't come out and tell people who to vote for. That's not really what Jacobin does. I and mean, maybe pretty close to it in a situation like Bernie versus Biden during the primaries. But um, this is just not a magazine where you're going to find a lot of like get out and vote context. That's not really what we do. Um, and it's certainly not the point of this article. Like the I mean, I think the, the mistake that both of these responses are making is exactly the symmetrical mistake. I mean, really, it's, I mean, there's, there's symmetrical reactions that are rooted in literally the same mistake, which is that people who write these kinds of angry responses to Jacobin articles, in their understanding of politics, whether you vote for Democrats or don't vote for Democrats is the most important burning issue that they can imagine. And so everything else is reinterpreted through that lens. It's like, no, you know, 99% of what I wrote for Jacobin is not about that. I mean, we have, it's, you know, 99% of what they publish is not about that. It's, you know, much more in both cases uh, than 99%. Like, you know, we actually legitimately have larger ideological fish to fry, which is not to say that if you ask me, Ben, what do you think, should I vote? Not that I'm not going to give you that pitch that I gave you earlier. Okay. So with all that said, I want to talk about uh, the article itself. So uh, the context is that uh, Biden, uh, a few days ago on Saturday, he held a rally in Joliet, Illinois, uh, where you know, it was a get out the vote kind of rally, of course. Um, and 
In fact, in the rally, Biden was finally <laughs> doing what Democrats really should have been doing the whole time, which is focusing on uh, how Republicans are going to cut Social Security and Medicare if they win. If the Democrats were smart, that would have been their overwhelming campaign message uh, instead of sort of bouncing around between this, you know, Jan 6 and hoping that abortion was going to carry them over the line and really mostly ignoring bread and butter issues for most of the campaign. But all that's just an aside. Here's the actual point of the article. On his way in, Biden was greeted by protesters who seemed to have been affiliated with the conservative organization Turning Points USA, TPUSA, with which I have some experience. And these TPUSA people were holding signs that said, socialism sucks. And then during his speech, the president referred to the signs, uh, saying, quote, uh, this is the Biden quote, I loved those signs when I came in. Socialism, give me a break, idiots, unquote. And what I say in the article is, unfortunately, he's right about that. Socialists are committed to putting an end to the brutally unequal distribution of wealth and economic power in our society. And Biden has spent his entire political life on the other side of those barricades. Uh, and to make that case in the article, I go back and start by talking about uh, his decades in the Senate, uh, when he uh, richly earned the nickname that he was given, the senator from MBNA, for his chubby relationship with the MBNA holding company, which is the parent company of MBNA Bank, and is headquartered in Biden state of Delaware. So according to yesterday's guest, uh, Bronco Marchetich, who's an author of a very good book called uh, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, Biden uh, voted, this is a quote from Marchetich, uh, against a measure requiring credit card companies to warn consumers of the consequences of making only minimum payments, uh, and voted four times for an industry-supported bankruptcy bill that made it harder for financially strained borrowers to get protection from creditors. And at the same time that Biden is in the Senate, making it harder for ordinary people to get bankruptcy protection from the banks and credit card companies, Biden spent years, this is again a quote from uh, Bronco, uh, quote, fighting off attempts to prohibit companies from filing for bankruptcy in states where they're incorporated but didn't do business. A measure that would have hit the big fees racked up by law firms in Delaware, where many major companies were incorporated, unquote. All right, so those are Biden's economic policies. You can already see how socialist those are uh, from when he was in the Senate. Uh, meanwhile, turn into superficially non-economic issues, although I'm going to argue in a second, I think there really is an economic core here uh, to who Biden is and uh, the, where he positioned himself in the Democratic Party. So meanwhile, Biden credited himself many times with having authored the Draconian 1994 crime bill. I couldn't find it while I was writing the article, but I know we've shown on GTAA, the main show on YouTube, we've shown uh, this clip of like this montage of Biden saying, you know, I wrote the crime bill, I wrote the crime bill, the Biden crime bill, you know, whatever. He's, you know, right up until it became unfashionable. He took credit for that monstrosity many, many, many times. Um, and as, yeah, as political winds have shifted, he stopped congratulating himself on that particular achievement. But there was a time when he proudly referred to it as uh, the, quote, Biden-Clinton crime bill, unquote. A few years earlier, he proposed a previous crime bill in 1991 uh, as an alternative to the one being pushed by then President George H.W. Bush that was actually a more draconian alternative to Bush's. 
and uh, he actually bragged, this is a quote from then Senator Biden, that his crime bill did, quote, everything but hang people for jaywalking, unquote. Uh, so this attitude, which you know, leads Bronco and what I'm quoted to call uh, Senator Biden a zealot for mass incarceration, uh, was, I think, intimately linked to his support for neoliberal economic policy. How? Well, the turn towards tough-on-crime politics emerged in the 70s, picked up steam in the 80s and 90s as part of a bipartisan turn away from the path of tackling poverty by expanding New Deal, Great Society, welfare state provisions away from that and towards the alternate, much grimmer path that we've been going down, imagining the social ills generated by poverty through a harsher regime of policing and incarceration. And Biden was right at the center of that bipartisan turn on those issues. So, you know, it's a hell of a socialist. So after kind of going through all this in the article, I mentioned uh, my own experience uh, debating the head of this organization that was protesting Biden and calling him socialist, uh, Charlie Kirk. Uh, when, uh, when I first met Charlie in the green room before the debate, he was wearing a Socialism Sucks t-shirt. And he, he cheerfully told me that he'd actually changed his shirt into his Socialism Sucks shirt, which he had been wearing earlier in the day, because his staff told him that I was wearing a Bernie shirt. Uh, so he wanted to respond to that. And, you know, I, I say in the article, I can understand why Charlie thinks Socialism Sucks makes sense as a jab at me. I can understand why he thinks that makes sense as a jab at Jack in the magazine. But why on earth would he or TPUSA think it made sense as a jab at Joe Biden? Well, uh, Kirk tweeted about this. I'm just going to read off his tweet here. This is Charlie Kirk's tweet. He says, Joe Biden just called Turning Point to activists idiots for saying he's a socialist. $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. $1.2 trillion, quote, infrastructure, unquote. $1 trillion student, let, student loan, quote, forgiveness, unquote. $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act. $5 trillion in 20 months is what exactly that's got that little hmm emoji. So this is Charlie's case that Biden is a socialist, that there was the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, $1.2 trillion infrastructure, and then the student loans and the Inflation Reduction Act. So let's, you know, take those apart one at a time, shall we? Because this is this is fun. Um, I, yeah, okay. So we did have a caller. We lost them. If you if you call back in, I'll, I'll in just a minute, I'll, I'll take the call. Uh, but I just want to keep uh, going through this part first. So it's worth noting that the second item on Kirk's list, which is the uh, 1.9, uh, sorry, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, well, what he's actually talking about is a bipartisan infrastructure bill that 19 Republican senators voted for and was enthusiastically supported by the Chamber of Commerce. So my question is, look, are those Republican senators socialist? Is the Chamber of Commerce socialist? I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, almost as absurdly, the first item on the list is the American Rescue Plan. Now, that one was a party line vote because, you know, it's a... Uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce wasn't as excited about it, and uh, and it was, um, you know, Republicans, obviously, it's a supercharged partisan environment. They don't want to give uh, Biden uh, an accomplishment. Uh, so it passed the Senate 50-49. So all the Democrats voted, you know, um, voted, you know for it. Uh, you know, I guess one Republican must have must have missed uh, the, uh, the vote. Um, but otherwise, they all voted against it, which... 
So that means that, okay, no Republicans voted for it, but every Democrat did. And I would love to know whether Charlie Kirk thinks that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are socialists. Like, is he that far gone? And it's really worth noting the actual substance of the bill bore more than, more than a passing resemblance to the CARES Act that was passed the year before, very similar provisions, and was signed by that notorious socialist Donald J. Trump. But even if putting aside the absurdity of Kirk's example, I said there's a much bigger problem with his claim. Does he really think that there's something socialist about the mere act of the government spending money? If so, does it matter to him what it's spent on? If the government spends money on a secret police force whose job is to infiltrate, spy on, and disrupt socialist and communist organizations, which is the kind of thing the FBI has done plenty of in the past uh, generations, is that is spending money on that a socialist act because it's the government spending money? How about when Ronald Reagan dramatically increased government spending and deficits over the course of the 80s for the sake of defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War arms race? I mean, if TPUSA had existed in the 80s, would they have waved around socialism suck signs outside of Reagan's speeches? I have to say, I kind of doubt it. Like, again, it's just a silly way of using the word socialist. Um, because this word has a specific historical meaning. And even if it's a broad enough tradition to admit of a range of interpretations, which it certainly is, it's not so broad that anything that falls under the category of government spending money is gonna fall somewhere within that range. So socialism is often used to, you know, that word socialism is often used to refer to a new and qualitatively more egalitarian economic system that could replace capitalism in the future. Um, it's how, like, Marx uses the word socialism as the next phase of economic history after capitalism when, you know, workers have taken over the means of production, or workers and communities, maybe, have taken over the means of production. Historically, when socialists have thought about what that qualitatively more democratic and egalitarian uh, economic system might look like, they've often thought about democracy in the workplace, taking at least key sectors of the economy, what are sometimes called the commanded heights of the economy, like banking and energy, into public ownership, you know, Fortune 500 companies, all that stuff. So uh, into public ownerships that can be planned for the good of society as a whole. But we can also refer to policies that can be implemented in the here and now as socialist policies, if they reflect socialist values and meaningfully point in the direction of that more egalitarian and democratic future. So sometimes socialism in uh, the second sense, like the socialist policies we can carry out right now, is called socialism within capitalism, socialism in the first sense, the new and qualitatively different system that would come after capitalism is called socialism after capitalism. Well, look, if you're going to call Biden a socialist, which one is it? Um, I mean, the dude is about a million miles away from being anything that anybody could mistake for an advocate of socialism after capitalism, but even more so, like even putting that aside, hardly anything he's done since assuming the presidency, and frankly, hardly anything he's even advocated doing comes anywhere close to the kind of short-term reforms that are advocated by socialists within the system. Like let's go through Charlie's other two examples. The Inflation Reduction Act included some you know, good and needed climate spending, although most of it's tax breaks, but whatever. It's it's good to, uh, a lot of it's tax breaks, but, you know, it's, it's good to direct 
uh, investment towards things that are going to be better for the climate, but it also includes plenty of corporate-friendly deregulation. And his student debt relief measure, well, you know, it's certainly a welcome break from where he was when he, on student debt when he was a senator, when he actually uh, helped make it impossible for student loan borrowers to, to get the protection of declaring bankruptcy. But even so, even the debt relief that he did as president was miserly and means tested. Socialists, like me, advocate treating higher education, just like K-12 education, as a universal social right, something that everybody should have the option to pursue if they choose to. We want tuition-free public education at every level, from preschool to grad school. So of course we think it's outrageous that people are shaken down decades after graduating for something that we don't think they should have been charged for in the first place. Biden's policy, by contrast, provides some relief to some borrowers if they, you know, are within below a certain income threshold, so you know they can prove that they needed enough. And look, is all that better than nothing? Yeah, for sure. Is it better than what the Republicans would do? Absolutely. But is it socialist? Um, as the president himself would say, come on, man. Uh, this is the last paragraph of the article. I'll just read this verbatim. I say, I would give my left arm for a president who actually earned the label. The TPUSA protesters are slapping on Joe Biden. We need and deserve leaders who will fight for economic equality and real democracy. But Joe Biden is not going to lead us into that more egalitarian future. He's yesterday's man. Okay. Uh, so that's the article. I'm going to throw it open to anybody who uh, who wants to uh, wants to call in, um, and uh, while you know, up uh, oh, yep, we got one right away. So uh, got Schnarf, Schnarf, what is on your mind? What's up? Um, I, I was actually uh, so so two things. First and foremost, um, you have me very interested in uh, in Gerald Cohen. So yeah. I went. I, I found a bunch of videos of him where yeah. he's yeah. impersonating Marx and he's doing all this shit. And I actually, I was kind of entertained. I was like, all right, so I, I see the hook. And all then right. I was like, okay, so let me dig in a little further. And then I read your Jacobin article. And I am seeing, okay, Isaiah Berlin is very dry, mm -hmm. but I am seeing the parallel, okay? And I do see the pluralistic uh, I wouldn't say revisionist. I'd say I say yeah. pluralistic, and the the elements of what Isaiah Berlin emphasizes as positive freedom and negative freedom. Are you familiar with that or no? Uh, I am. Yeah, but it's it's probably worth uh, it's probably worth unpacking for a minute just because you know just because other people who are listening might not be. So uh, roughly speaking, negative freedom is freedom against interference. That's the kind of freedom that like libertarians are talking about. And uh, positive freedom is something like the idea that you, uh, to have like real, real freedom, real liberty, uh, you, you need to have some kind of social needs, like, like you need some, some affirmative action to be taken to meet your needs. So like one way of thinking about I this, know. uh, is that, um, and, you know, I think Berlin talks about this, I think, in his classic essay about this. Um, is... Fromm takes it from him, too, which is the first time I've encountered it. And I think 
So, so like the tide yeah. is right back. Well, well I, should, I, should, I, should, I should just say real quickly, just to make sure everybody's got the idea, right, about the about positive liberty. That like one way of thinking about that, which which I you know tend to be enthusiastic about, is that the sort of most basic kind of freedom isn't even freedom from coercion, although that's important. It's freedom from domination. And if you have um, if people are in a situation of like economic desperation that really opens themselves up to domination from others who can, you know, who the, they'll then like rely on to, you know, meet their needs through an employment contract, for example. So that's the, that, you know, that would be the, that would be the, the sort of positive freedom conception. But yeah, what were you going to say about from? So what I was going to say is there's a, there's a uh, 99 cent version of what you just said, which is really, really simple. It's freedom from and freedom to. Right. Mm-hmm. The freedom, too, is the is is the way we express ourselves and the and, and the ability to distribute like, you know, a hundred different magazines about anything ranging from pornography to to media or to, to like news media, whatever it is. Right. We have the ability to do that. We have the ability to dress how we like. We even have the we go as far as being able to express our sexuality in any sort of way we want. But we don't have freedom from, which is the negative liberty, which is freedom from poverty, freedom from disease, freedom from the fact that we don't have education. Those are the negative freedoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Berlin talked about the yeah. The I, I should just. I, I totally get what you're saying, and it's very well said. But I I, I do want to just like quickly note that uh, usually, I mean, I, it's fine. It's a metaphor. You can use it however the hell you want. But it's the usually it's the other way around that usually people. When they say negative freedom, they mean they're talking about like um, freedom from government interference. And when they talk about positive freedom, they're talking about like um, what you're calling negative freedom—the sort of freedom, you know, like like the FDR. For, for I'm going freedom. by from in Berlin, which which I'll be honest with you, I don't like the the American version of what how this interprets. I, I might not be I might not be the best. Yeah, example. this is this is just this is this is not this is not an important point at all. I just want to say for anybody who's confused, right? You know, I think I think usually people uh, again that the aside the positive and negative ones the other way around, so they're like freedom from want and stuff like that would be part of what they're talking about with like positive freedom and like you know freedom you know like freedom of speech in the sense that the government won't censor you. So indulge my definition for a second. Indulge my definition for a second, because I think I think when people talk about socialism, it it tends to be more focused on this freedom to and less on the freedom from. And I think the Cold War uh, consolidated rhetoric has really worked its magic on the American population. So like if someone if if any everything and anything that 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 needs to be interpreted as socialism will be interpreted as socialism because that's by design and i think they did a good job in in essentially getting americans to react to anything that would change the status quo away from the corporatist agenda as socialism a perfect example when uh, when they were fighting against segregation segregation is communism masks during the during they, the lockdown integration are, are inter- integration you did i mean it's integration in the south like yeah, integration yeah, yeah. of schools yep, yep. yeah it's like it's like a visceral reaction like right off the bat of the american especially of the american right wing but then when you go into the moderate sectors of america there's almost you know that that kind of hesitancy because they see it too it, it's I'm not sure how they were able to 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 really coerce the population into accepting all of this, but 
it worked. And now here we are all the way in, in, you know, very, very long after everything's taken place. And the bigger question that I have for you is this, is that like, is there anything within the United States political economy that could qualify for socialism? Like actual genuine Uh socialism? Yes. Because so, I don't see it. Like I don't I don't think social security is socialism. Sure. I don't think the post office is socialism. Like sure. as, as as someone who espouses to be a socialist myself and as someone who, who like thinks this way, I don't I don't see these basic needs as being socialism. Yeah, I mean you could say I mean in the case of the post office, like so there again, this I want to make the separation that I made in the article and you know, when I was just going through there between like you know, sort of socialist policies uh, and uh, and socialism as like a sort of qualitatively new economic system, because uh, obviously we don't have that right in the uh, in the United States as far as even policies go. Uh, I mean, I think the post office is actually an interesting example because it is like a um, it is uh, it is something that's. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's nationalized. It's a public service. It's able to be provided at a uh, uh, at a fraction of the rate that the free market would. All that stuff. Uh, so you could maybe say that anticipates a little bit uh, certain features of what a socialist economy would look like. Although obviously not so much the uh, you know workplace democracy part. Anybody who's ever read Charles Bukowski's novel Post Office, you know, is, uh, or 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 has a memory that stretches back to the nineties. And knows where the phrase "going postal" comes from. Knows that, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think the post office is like maybe the the sort of best example. But like uh, as far as some of the other examples you mentioned, like uh, Social Security, um, you know, Medicare, uh, these like I mean, I, I think the important difference between these things, which are like Social Security was a product of the New Deal in the 30s. Uh, Medicare was a product of you know the Great Society in the 60s. Um, so those are like th- those kinds of like high watermarks of left liberalism were about as close as we got to social democracy in the United States. Uh, and then the question is, uh, well, I think I think it's significant that like. FDR and LBJ were creatures of the Democratic Party. That, in other words, that it was like maybe a time when the Democratic coalition was very different in some ways than it is right now. And like there were other kinds of pressures they were responding to, and they were willing to like go much further in a direction of an expansive welfare state than, you know, Democrats have been at other times in history. But the but the point of getting at is that it's like there weren't people these you know, presidents Roosevelt and Johnson weren't like prime ministers who came out of a labor party or a socialist party uh, in some European country. And I think you can kind of see the see that distinction even in the design of those programs because, uh, like, in well, in both of those cases, it's sort of uh, yeah, I guess you know, it's not exactly means tested for the most part. Although with social security. Uh, the uh, the sort of extent of your benefits is calculated based on your you know your salary during your working years, but like, but the fact that both of those are only for elderly people for the most part, um, 
or you know you can get social security benefits also if you have certain disabilities and stuff but i mean like that you have to it's like okay we're, we'll give you stuff if you're uh old and infirm and you know you can't work anymore uh but you know but just if you're like a working age you know person uh who's who's trying to get through the pride of your life then uh then you don't get shit like that that does i, I think say something politically like when I, you know, when you think about like what would count as as a socialist policy, right? In other words, not like what would count as achieving socialism, right? But what would count as a socialist policy? I mean, the sort of vague thing I said in the articles that it like meaningfully points in the direction of a more equal society. Well, how could a how could a policy, how could like a reform do that? Uh, I think there may be a couple ways, but certainly one way I could do it is just by by being truly universal, that they, uh, that, um, you know, that you, sh like, when you think about part of the reason the socialists object to capitalism, this actually goes back to what you were saying about, you know, Isaiah Berlin and Eric Frum and negative and positive liberty and all that stuff. Like, part of the objection is about market dependence, that, uh, that part of the objectionable thing about capitalism is that people have to, um, that people sort of are systematically at the mercy of market forces, that they have to rely on it to, to meet all of their needs. And this opens them up to these forms of domination and all that stuff. So I think that like one way in which reformist policies, even within the system can point in the direction of a different kind of society is just by, you know, meeting everybody's needs without, without having to prove that you're in some kind of special need, right. You know, that like you could just, uh, you know, you could go, I mean, it, you know, I mean, in some ways, I guess you could say that like K-12 schooling does this. Uh, but of course, our higher education system definitely doesn't that like you don't have to prove that you're like poor enough that you really need help. You don't have to prove that you're uh, that, you know, that you're well, you're you're so old that you can't be expected to work anymore. You don't have to prove any of that stuff. Right. You can just be just just for being a person. You should get to have education and health care, you know all of these needs met, those should just be the given that you're building your life on the the foundation of. And obviously it's possible to have policies that do that and still have capitalism. I mean, that's what social democracy is, but it's, I think there is a certain sense at which, in which policies that do that kind of point to the direction of a society where people aren't just thrown on the mercy of the market and you figure it out and put in situations where they're desperate enough that they really are liable to be, you know, to have to be, be dominated by people with money. So food for thought, we, yeah. we, 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 we may have different visions of what yeah. socialism is, but I guess, I guess the, the question that I want to ask you is this, is that ideologically speaking, when younger people, you know, the, the ones who, who have the hammer and sickle, uh, over a rainbow flag and, you know, the ones who, you know, bring up Mao and, and have these kind of very, like, weird, almost totalitarian visions that are that are not really totalitarian. They're like, they're supposed to be these forms of liberation in modern life. And they, they exist in the Twitter sphere. And they're yeah. they're they're very like rant. They're they're kind of strange people. What is their vision of socialism? And where did that come from, in your opinion? Because 
I've been trying to wrap my head around that because it doesn't match up to the to the American experiments, right? It doesn't relate back to the new left or it doesn't go back to like, you know, Debs or, or De Leon or, or, or any of these yeah. kinds of figures in the beginning. Where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, I don't take any of that very seriously. I think that most of the people you're describing uh, probably, this is going to sound harsh, but I think this is true. Probably for the most part, we're talking about teenagers uh, who who do that. Um, they go like go for that combination of political expression you're describing. Uh, they, I think, very often don't know very much about the uh, the countries they're reaching for. Like my, uh, I mean, my favorite example of this are the people who will simultaneously be like uh, comrade Stalin did nothing wrong, but then they'll also be prison abolitionists. It's like, well, hold on, <laughs> you know, right? Like, uh, you're going to defend the Gulag Archipelago, but you're also a prison abolitionist, right? How does that work? Um, or, you know, again, like like I said, there'll be the hammer and sickle next to the rainbow flag. And it's like, you know, a lot of these countries uh, made homosexuality illegal, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think oftentimes they don't know very much about it. I mean, my, my basic take, well, okay, so you also raised at the beginning, you know, when, you know, sort of whether visions of socialism are different or all that stuff. I would say what I, you know, what I think of a socialist society, right, what I mean is a, uh, an economic system that's qualitatively more uh, equal and democratic than the one that we have uh, right now, that like how you know, how resources are distributed and, and more fundamentally, because this is the upstream question, how economic power is distributed is much more equal and, uh, and democratic that the, uh, that, um, you know, you can have, which both means, you know, democracy at the workplace, but also that, you know, the sort of larger social decisions about, you know, big, uh, larger scale economic questions that impact everybody's lives are made collectively and, uh, and democratically, which is one reason to support state ownership, at least at the very least, you know, the commanding heights. Uh, but I think as far as where they sort of, uh, that kind of performative online, um, sort of neo-Stalinist, but also somehow you've got the, you know, trans flag or whatever, uh, with no sense of cognitive dissonance stuff comes from, uh, I guess my main take on that would just be, I mean, this is the stuff that I wrote about in my book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, uh, that, like, I think that there's a lot of performative radicalism that just comes from ultimately some very deep pessimism about actually changing the world uh, in the present. Because if you don't really, you know, whatever you say, if deep down you don't really see left politics as a project to, to actually alter the material conditions around you, what you really see it as is like a protest against those conditions. Uh, that like you don't really believe that you're ever going to be in power and have a chance to carry out your program. You just believe that you're, you're ultimately, you know, ultimately the purpose of a radical left is to file a kind of, a kind of protest, kind of discontent against what exists right now. Well, hell, I mean, if that's it, right, I mean, then not only are you not going to worry about what's going to appeal to the great mass of normies who you'd have to convince to support your political project if you were serious about changing the material world, in which case, like, sort of fly the flags of, of uh, mercifully dead authoritarian regimes is like the last thing you would do. But you uh, not only are you not doing that, but actually you have the opposite incentive, because, like, if you really want to, like, show 
it's just kind of an inventory of the heart. You really want to show how pure your inner protest is against that stuff. That it's like, well, what, what's a sort of sharper form of protest than um, that identified with the things that are most likely to horrify uh, Norbis? So uh, that, like, if you say, I'm pleasantly like, surprised. Actually, I'm really pleasantly surprised that you give you're giving this answer because I I, I tend to I I I, I think that. At first, I was very apprehensive, and I thought that you would be like you would you would applaud this because it it, it it's something, right? And I think if we applaud the fact that people are creating some kind of a false narrative that's not based on anything, it doesn't have any kind of uh, a material basis. There's no economic aspect. There's no psychological aspect. There's no sociological aspect, and people applaud it. And there are people that do this. Um, I've seen shows on call-in where people literally have no idea what, what even the basic things, like the difference between socialism and communism or any aspect of history. It's like they'll applaud it. And, and these people will be in the caller queue and they'll, they'll espouse these views and they'll have these kinds of takes, but they honestly don't have an, ideolo- an, ide- like an ideological core that anyone can really coalesce around or be used for movement of liberation. And I think that's the difference between us now and let's say 1972. Mm -hmm. We we lack an ideological basis for liberation or change. We are essentially products of capitalism because even even the people who profess the more like far reaching nonsense, that's still created in the shadow of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't- I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't give 1972 too much credit there. Uh, I think if you, I think that if you look back at the New Left, uh, there was, um, you know, I mean, there was a sort of version of this uh, that existed. Some of that, but yeah, I mean, look, I, it's going to be better than this, no? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think depending on what you're talking about, I mean, I don't know that like the weathermen are better than this, but I think that like, uh, but you know, there are certainly, there's certainly. There's certainly elements of the new left that are much better, uh, we're much, much better than this. But I mean, again, I would also just urge that it's like, look, I know the people you're talking about. I know it seems like a mass, like if you, sure, people show up and might show up and call in caller cues, they might show up in YouTube comments, they show up certainly on Twitter, but it's like, you know, they, you know, the internet is to a great extent a machine for making uh, pretty peripheral views seem less peripheral than they than they are, uh, and I wouldn't, um, you know, I mean, I, I do think that the you know the vast majority of of people who are, um, you know, who who would identify with socialism in the the United States in 2022 uh, are not like that. I mean, because because they're not even like uh, you know sometimes people like this will. I mean, it's actually funny sometimes people like you're describing the few of them who don't just purely do politics online, who want to actually do some sort of activist thing in the real world, they'll join the Communist Party USA because they don't want to join the DSA because they think that's too liberal or whatever. Uh, and then they find out that- I was kicked out of a DSA meeting. Okay, well, I have no choice. I have to join CPUSA or PSL or somewhere, yeah, somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not uh, yeah, but I mean, like, look, most, the vast majority of people who, like, join something, they join DSA, right? They, like, you know, think uh, they, like, they, there are, like, there are, like, little magazines that cater to the stuff you're talking about, but, like, 
by far the most popular socialist magazine in the U.S. is is Jacobin, right? Which is certainly not has nothing to do with any of that stuff. So it's like I would just say, it's like I'm, I'm not trying to do a victory lap on this because like we're still talking about like even the better stuff. The Jacobin DSA stuff is still a, a very small minority of the American public, and you know, and, and it has very little power to do much. But I I, I do think I I don't I don't lose too much sleep over the sort of uh, online neo-Stalinist, but also rainbow flag somehow crowd. I think that's pretty, uh, I think that's pretty peripheral, but uh, in any case, uh, thank you for the call. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. Um, I might do one of these tomorrow, uh, at which point we might actually know what happened with the elections. But right now, I think I'm going to go watch some election streams uh, and, uh, and try to get some idea of what's happening out there. I'm going to, um, and then I'm going to be on a couple of election streams later in the night. Uh, first, I think probably around 8.30, I'm going to go on the Movie Night Extravaganza uh, stream on, U- on YouTube uh, with uh, Ravana from the Young Turks and uh, our own from the main show on YouTube, Jandrew World, our former producer, Forrest. And a bunch of other people that we talked about Bob Roberts earlier in the night, but by the time we get on, they're just going to be chatting about the midterms. And then later I'm going to be going on to ideologically enemy territory, uh, not alone, but uh, Matt Bender and I are both going to be uh, guests on the stream that uh, it's like an odyssey stream. I, I posted a link to it last night uh, on my Twitter. If you want to go find it, that Lauren Chen and uh, Lauren Southern, I think are, are doing and uh, like destiny is going to be there or whatever. So it should be a, ideologically mixed hodgepodge of, uh, of opinions uh, talking about what's going on with the election, but should be fun. So I think I'm probably going out there around nine ish. So uh, maybe see some of you guys there. Um, I should also say the, uh, the, my debate in Chicago with Curtis Yarvin, that's finally been released. So we might run like right now you can go see it at the unregistered uh, podcast, YouTube page, but we might rerun it on the GTA uh, YouTube page, eh, maybe even tomorrow. I'm not 100% sure about that yet. But in any case, so lots going on, lots to look forward to. Uh, and again, I'll probably do one of these tomorrow. Left is back.